Blog Talk Radio. the February 17th, 2013 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast devoted to the discussion of news and current events from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and today I semi-regret to inform you that I could not resist. I had to read the State of the Union address. So we are going to be talking first about the bad and the ugly, namely my reaction to Obama's State of the Union address. But don't despair, because we will follow up our discussion of the bad and the ugly with a discussion of the good. Namely, I have three good news stories to uh, have you stick around to the end to hear about, okay? If you want to talk to me about the State of the Union, other things, call 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760 760- 888-5817, or you can participate in the chat room. We've got some people already starting the discussions and the little smiley faces there, so it's good to see you. Let's go ahead and dive right in, okay? Um, again, stay the union address. SOTU is the acronym that a lot of people have been using. Of course, other people have been tempted to use the acronym STFU, which could be state of the something union or it could be shut the you know what up and uh some people were offended by people using that but one thing you have to remember is that Obama because he's got a new four-year term he gets to use all of the media exposure and big speeches that are watched all over the country like this in order to spread his ideology, his agenda. So, I mean, that that's really our impulse is that we would just like him to be quiet. Unfortunately, he is not going to be quiet. And so what do we have to do? We have to try to answer him. We need to take him apart, all of his arguments and non-arguments, and point them out, point out where they're wrong, where they're bankrupt, where they're empty. So that's what I hope to do for you today. I do refer you as well to the reactions to the State of the Union by Yaron Brook and Don Watkins. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to see that Yaron Brook's reaction to the State of the Union was posted. I gather what he did is that he gave a positive version of what the State of the Union address should have looked like, should have sounded like. And that after that, and I did get to see this, Don Watkins went ahead and analyzed the actual State of the Union address that was actually uh, delivered by Obama. Uh, By the way, whenever you refer to Obama, if you want to go ahead and follow a trend that is started by Bosch Faustin this week, cartoonist Bosch Faustin often drops in on this show. He might be able to drop in for a couple minutes today, but I don't want to tease you with that. I hope he can. We'll see about that. I think for sure he's going to be back next week. But one thing that he's been doing in his work on Front Page Magazine is trying to start a trend of calling uh, Obama Barack Benghazi Obama. Just go ahead and make Benghazi his middle name so that he can never live down the uh, kind of omission from the duties that he should have performed with regard to Benghazi. So we'll refer to to him as Barack Benghazi Obama. So what did Barack Benghazi Obama say to us this week? He, He started out again talking about this idea that if you work hard, if you are dedicated, you should therefore automatically get a reward. Here's the quote from Obama. He says, there are millions of Americans whose hard work and dedication have not yet been rewarded, end quote. And then he goes on to refer to his so-called basic bargain that everybody should be able to have. He says, if you work hard and meet your responsibilities, that you should be rewarded. The phrase, meet your responsibilities, strikes me as something new, not 
out there in the previous speeches, but it's very vague. And one of the things that Don Watkins pointed out about Obama's uh, you know, speech that you can just kind of pin him down on is that there's a lot of things that are vague, that are unclear in the speech, and that it's important to try to pin Obama down and say, well, what exactly are your responsibilities? But in general, this is all part of his you know, message that he's done previously, which is that you should just automatically get rewarded so long as you show that you have worked and that you are dedicated. In other words, he wants a version of the so-called riskless society that regardless of whether your hard work and dedication results in producing a value that other people are willing to uh, trade for, right, that they're willing to give up their money for, that you should just be able to get rewarded. All, all you have to do is show hard work and dedication. You don't have to show that you have produced a value that anybody else even wants in the world. But really, in a proper society, the moral question is, does your hard work, does your dedication result in something that anybody else would voluntarily want to give up their money for, would voluntarily want to reward you for? You know, not, not all rewards are monetary, right? Um you guys are hanging out here at the show. This is part of, of my reward for the effort that I put out, right? So so not all rewards are monetary, but the question is, do you put out value that other people voluntarily want to reward you for? Obama doesn't care about that. He wants everything to be riskless, that as long as you work hard, as long as you're dedicated, as long as you meet your quote-unquote responsibilities, whatever he thinks those are, you should get a reward. Uh, Greg Gutfeld, by the way, on a recent episode of Red Eye, he brought up this idea that Obama wants a riskless society to the assembled guests. And I can't remember who the guests were that day. This was about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago. And it fell flat, unfortunately. I think a lot of times he has guests there that aren't responsive to a lot of his good thoughts. But this is exactly right. Obama wants to take all of the risk out of productive effort. And effort is really only productive if it succeeds in producing values that will sustain and enhance human life. And there are a number of people that have all these ideas that just don't work. Here's here's another quote from Obama. He says, no matter where you come from, what you look like, who you love, that you should go ahead and, and be rewarded is the implication. Of course, the who you love is now his new hat tip that he puts out there to homosexuals, but in terms of, you know, where you come from, what you look like, who you love, his implication is that the only reason you aren't rewarded for your hard work and your dedication is because you come from the wrong place, you look the wrong way, you love the wrong person or you love a person of the wrong sex, whatever. Couldn't imagine that the person's hard work fails to produce a value. As he said in the past, he says, uh, quote, America moves forward only when we do so together, end quote. Typical collectivist message. You have this cartoon in mind. This is something that would be fun to have Bosch draw for us. Uh, there's a wagon filled with all of these horrible, unproductive people that just want to have everybody else provide for them, and they're being pulled by Atlas. So instead of Atlas, holding up the globe, and he's going to shrug. Instead, Atlas is being forced to pull this wagon, and the only way he can move forward is by pulling all of the unproductive people with him in this horribly heavy wagon. When Obama refers to the sequester and the cuts that are coming in the sequester, he calls them arbitrary. Uh, people who actually know the meaning of the word arbitrary know that in order for something to be arbitrary, there has to be absolutely no basis at all for believing that that thing is proper or true, etc. Uh, if I wanted to refer to budget cuts as arbitrary, I would more likely look at Gary Johnson's uh, across-the-board 43% cut as being kind of arbitrary. You know, this idea that there's a 43% budget deficit and, you know, that the, the expenditures exceed revenues by 43% or whatever, so that therefore the best way to cut the budget is just across-the-board Regardless, you know, cut everything 43%, including defense and other proper functions of government. I would prefer not to do that. But supposedly the sequester is not arbitrary, right? Um, each of the politicians who participated in negotiating the sequester did it in part because they thought that those are the cuts that should have taken place. 
in part because of who knows what bizarre special interests were pulling on them at the time, but in part because they knew that the cuts that would take place if the sequester was to take effect would be incentive enough to bring them back to the bargaining table to negotiate something alternative, something better. I don't think that's arbitrary. You might think it's wrong, bad, but arbitrary, no. So Obama does not use words uh, precisely at all. Now, when he lists off the various cuts that will take place under the sequester, the, the thought that comes to mind, you know, he talks about education and military and all these things. The thing that comes to mind is this. Every politician of whatever party, with the exception of a very few who are in Washington right now, every politician has a pet project. No one seems willing to cut anything, right? Whatever, you know, that whole array of stuff, there are politicians there who don't want to see those cuts made at all. Uh, this week, we saw the issue of the cutting of salaries of congressmen come up and Nancy Pelosi with her stupid line about dignity, right? They, they have so much dignity that it would infringe on the dignity of their profession to cut their salaries. Well, Nancy Pelosi, what about infringing on the dignity of doctors when you voted under Obamacare to control what doctors could make to, in effect, cut their salaries? But no, I guess doctors who save our lives are not dignified enough. Only the politicians who put chains on the doctors are, are dignified enough to, to keep the, the level of salary that they have. Uh, he says he's prepared, Obama says he's prepared to enact more reforms of health care and that the reforms that he wants to enact are going to yield savings when? At the beginning of the next decade. Reminds you of Louis XV, après moi le déluge. All politicians do this. They say, yes, oh, we are going to enact all these spending cuts and boy, they'll take effect pretty much right after I leave office which lets you know it will never happen. The spending cuts will never take place. I have yet to see politicians actually enact spending cuts that, I mean, big spending cuts, significant cuts that take place immediately. They always put off the real cuts, the real so-called pain for, for many years down the road. More of the same from Obama. More about taxing the rich, that the rich need to pay their fair share more appeals to authority throughout the speech. And by appeal to authority, I mean the idea that Obama is asking you to suspend your own judgment and instead substitute the judgment of others in place of your own judgment and therefore accept whatever anybody else says. So how does he appeal to authority? He talks about certain plans that he wants to pass being supported by, quote-unquote, Leaders in both parties. Well, leaders of both parties have supported this, so who am I, little old Amy Peikoff, to object to Obama's plan when leaders of both parties have supported it, right? That's, that's an appeal to authority, that you are just supposed to sit back and say, oh, leaders of both parties have supported it. Little old me, I, I, I can't, you know, I can't uh, object he made more references to billionaires paying lower tax rates than their secretaries. Of course, this time he added hardworking to modify the word secretaries. So again, this idea that all they have to do is work hard. We're not going to judge them based on the value that they create. Never mind that most billionaires, now mind you, there are exceptions to this. There are billionaires. I think Soros is one of these, right? A billionaire who makes a ton of money off of gambling about the devaluing of currencies around the globe because of central banking and centralized banking government maneuvers and stuff. This guy is just cashing in on government destruction of value. But we're talking, you know, most billionaires out there are actually creating value and that's why they get the money that they do. People are willing to give them money because they create value. I mean, in his own way, Soros, by trading, is, you know, taking care of some sort of inequities in the market, and he's somehow yielding resources to go to a higher value. I mean, he's doing it, but he's doing it in this horrible context, and I, I don't commend him at all. Uh, secretaries, usually not as innovative, right? The reason the secretary can have a job is that there is the billionaire out there who is producing great values, 
trading them on the free market and then has the money to to pay the secretary. So I would say billionaires morally should pay a lower rate. Uh, They're still paying way more in absolute dollar values than the secretary. So more of the same. Uh, He talks about the fact that he wants to lower incentives to move jobs overseas through the tax code. Apparently, there are various incentives that exist to move jobs overseas. He wants to lower those incentives by reforming the tax code. What about President Obama? Oh, my gosh, innovation here. What about getting rid of the disincentives that exist for people to hire here, right? Uh, The fact that we have minimum wages, I say that with emphasis because he's going to go ahead and propose a higher minimum wage. We have unions. We have all sorts of regulations strangling businesses here. That's why those jobs go overseas in the first place. It's not because of stupid tax incentives. Taxes make a difference. They do. But I would say that there's a lot more disincentives that we need to to address to keep business on our shores here. He mentions that the people in Congress should set party interests aside, and then they're, of course, going to reach a magic compromise in line with what he wants. And, you know, his implication is that it's only party interests that stand in the way between the politicians and them compromising with Obama on his collectivist, egalitarian agenda. You know, it couldn't be that they actually have any ideological interests and that the ideological interests might be based on something in reality having to do with the way that they should be doing their jobs. Oh, no, of course, it's only party interests. It's only politics. Now, it is true that a lot of the Republicans these days do really care only about party interests. Uh, There's, you know, the establishment Republicans really often sometimes sicken me, but I just leave it open that there are a number of people, a growing number of people, Ted Cruz is a good example, of people who are coming in and taking their jobs seriously and keeping promises to their constituencies and keeping good promises to their constituencies. So uh, it's not just party interests, Obama. Obama says we got three questions that we should ask, three litmus tests. Uh, First is we should try to attract jobs, he says, attract jobs. Is it the government's interest, you know, government's job, is it their job to attract jobs? I would say no. I would say it's the government's job to protect individual rights and get out of the way of the producers so that the producers can create wealth, which will, as a side effect, create more jobs. There will be jobs, plenty of jobs, if the government just gets out of the way. Uh, this idea that they have to come in and, and just intervene a little bit more in order to make jobs more attractive here in the United States, tinker with it, give incentives here and disincentives there, it, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, second thing he says, we have to equip our people with skills. Again, equipping people with skills is not the job of a proper government. When is it the government? Government is supposed to be the entity that protects your rights, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are rights to action, not the rights to be you know, provided with something, whether it be free education or anything else. Uh, moreover, the thing that I always find ironic when he talks about all his education initiatives and he wants to equip us with skills, what is he preparing them for? He is going to beat all the jobs out of existence, and then all these people are going to have skills and no jobs to go to. So that's ridiculous. Then he says as his third litmus test for anything that we're trying to do, that Congress should be trying to do, we have to make sure that hard work leads to a decent living. Again, he wants a riskless society. It's all this egalitarian BS, to excuse my non-pronounced French there. He wants... Hard work, even if that hard work doesn't create a value to be rewarded out there. Or if it's not rewarded out there, the government should give you some sort of little stipend so you can have the basic bargain, which is, you know, a little house, not too big a house. You can give your kids an education, but, you know, not too great an education. You know, just good enough, good enough so that they can get a a good middle-class job, right? This idea of leaving people free and realizing that life is not riskless, that life comes with its ups and downs, and that no government 
can even that out. You know, government cannot make reality other than what it is. Life comes with risk. It cannot get rid of that. But that's what Obama wants to do. I mean, uh, suppose I'm going to work really hard. I am going to make horse-drawn buggies. I'm going to make the best horse-drawn buggies in the entire world. Only problem, there's no market for them. Nobody wants it. How about that? I mean, come on. It's it's, it's ridiculous. I'm going to make... I don't know, bright green lipstick. I guess somebody wants that, but wh- you know, whatever. The point is you have to create a value that somebody wants on the free market. Obama doesn't want anybody to have to, to deal with that. He's got all kinds of proposals in which he plans to spend your and my money. Um, I saw a little thing that was being passed around on the Internet through Facebook, and it was a, a little translation of various phrases that Obama uses. And he uses the phrase fully paid for, which means we're going to raise your taxes in order to do this. Um, he says, we'll not increase the deficit by a single dime. Of course, this is all bogus as well. But one thing that disturbed me, and I did not watch, I only read the State of the Union address, but I heard that Tim Cook was in attendance to hear Obama at the State of the Union and, of course, I guess get the applause or whatever from all the assembled politicians when Obama said, quote, Apple will start making Macs in America again this year. Yikes. Uh, My first question, my first reaction was, is it a good thing for Apple to be making Macs in America? I'm kind of wondering what happened to Apple's stock price after people saw that they were going to be making the Macs in America and that Tim Cook was hanging out at Obama's State of the Union address. Um, Another question worth asking is, why is Apple coming to make Max in America again. I heard, I can't remember where I read this, and i got to dig up the story. I'm sorry I don't have it. But I heard that the workforce, Apple's workforce in China, was starting to be unionized. So I'm wondering if people in our government sort of helped that to take place because, you know, of course, the poor people in China, it's so horrible, their working conditions, so we have to help them unionize. In other words, try and take away the comparative advantage that Apple can get from having uh, people in China build their Macs. If you look at uh, your own Brooke and Don Watkins Q&A, and somebody in the in the chat room had asked, <laughs> um, somebody in the chat room had asked, what? Uh, sorry, I'm laughing at some things that people are saying in the chat room here, and I just got distracted. Conrad said that Obama uh, would like people to dig a hole with a shovel because, of course, digging a hole with a shovel and then filling it back up again is really, really hard work. Sometimes I feel, Conrad, when I'm driving the freeways, that that is what the Caltrans people are doing out there, that they're just digging holes with a shovel and then filling it back up again. Um, But what Yaron and Don Watkins did on their laissez-faire blog, which is found at capitalism.einrand.org, org. If you go there, you can see Don Watkins and own the Q&A uh, after the State of the Union address. They were asked, why don't businessmen fight? Why does a Tim Cook, who is the head of Apple, go and sit at the State of the Union address, basically sanctioning the destroyer of all business, including Apple? Uh, why did Steve Jobs have a dinner with Obama, even though Steve Jobs, I heard at that dinner, was critical of Obama. Uh, Steve Jobs said that Obama would be only a one-term president. Unfortunately, he was wrong. But why don't these businessmen shrug? You know, it's Atlas shrugged the the title. Why don't they? Why don't they shrug? And Yaron said it well. He said that uh, you know these ideas are hard to understand, that businessmen really don't get it. And uh, Huron also expressed dismay at the fact that he wasn't, you know, John Galt, he wasn't able to uh, to convince people as, as quickly as, as he'd like to, that their self-interest is to shrug, is to refrain from going to the State of the Union address and sitting there while Obama lays out a program which is basically geared towards your execution. That's what happened. Um, Some concrete bound examples of things that he wanted to do, Obama. He talks about having these partnerships or or hubs where basically government is partnering with the private sector. 
more and more fascism. This is the idea where, yeah, you have this veneer of private property, but the government is mixing itself in with the private property owners and uh, basically giving them so-called incentives to do what they want them to do, disincentives to not do what they don't want them to do, just meddling themselves in. This idea of more and more partnerships really means that, yeah, you're letting you're letting this veneer of private property take place, but really government is calling the shots all the way through. He gives examples of places where these so-called partnerships have yielded a return on investment. Um, there's one example where, you know, every dollar yielded $140 of this, you know, this one thing that government did. But he doesn't tell you about the Solyndras and the other black holes where we've just dumped taxpayer dollars down a big black hole. He also doesn't tell you about the displacement of resources in the economy. So, uh, for example, there was a discussion that I had with Debbie, and I think Debbie might be on, on hold to chat with me now, so I hope to, to get to her in a little bit here. But uh, Debbie in the past was really eloquent in describing how, with respect to engineers, that the incentives that were put out by the government, because government was, quote-unquote, investing in green energy and in solar and stuff, that basically you would take these very smart engineers idealistic, ready to go and produce and have great careers. And you'd put them into these green jobs instead of producing things that would actually succeed in the free market and slowly beat the soul out of them because they'd realize, A, that what they're doing isn't economical, that basically they depend on government for their continued existence, which means that they depend on stealing money from the taxpayer. Uh, of course, he did explicitly mention that we have to keep investing in solar, uh, talks about climate change, engaged in another appeal to authority because he appeals to so-called bipartisan support for his initiatives here. Um, he also has another sort of appeal to authority, another sort of way in which he asks you to just set aside your judgment to suppress your judgment as to what is the truth, and instead take somebody else's judgment and substitute it for your judgment. Uh, he talks about competition with other countries, that other countries are taking the lead with respect to green energy, and so therefore we better hurry up and, and make sure that we take the lead instead. You know, he appeals, and, and you know, he's also appealing to this idea that America always wants to be the best, that we don't want to be left behind. Uh, but here's here's the money quote. He says, as long as countries like China keep going all in on clean energy, so must we, end quote. Mm, Mr. Obama, really? So if China commits human rights violations, say they set a maximum birth rate, you can only have one child, they force you to have abortions if you don't, uh, we should just do that too, right? I mean, after all, if China does it, they go all in on clean energy, we have to do it. Other, other things that he hinted at, regulations on natural gas. You know, natural gas has been doing so well. Natural gas is the only cheap form of energy that seems to exist out there. But he insists that we can make it burn cleaner. In other words, make it more expensive. Uh, he wants to, quote, use some of our oil and gas revenues, end quote, and put it into some bizarre trust. Our oil and gas revenues? Isn't that the oil and gas revenues of the companies that produce the oil and gas? But no, it's ours. Ours, right? Translation, he plans to impose more taxes on them, therefore higher prices for you at the pump and in your monthly bills. Also more displacement because he wants to encourage, which means spend tax dollars on, more energy efficient buildings. And he wants all the states, of course, to follow suit as well. More and more and more of the usual garbage, aging infrastructure. He talks about our aging infrastructure. And then he creates fancy names for the bills and the initiatives that he wants to use to, you know, to fix our aging infrastructure. He has one program called Fix It First, the Fix It First program. It sounds 
snazzy. You know, let, let, let's fix the stuff that's really broken first, right? So you're going to feel so much better about your money being stolen from you and put into the fix it first program, right? That's awesome. Then, here, again, I wasn't watching the speech in person, but I, you know, if you go and you look at the transcript at whitehouse.gov, they will show you the little places where people laughed in response, where Obama got a laugh. Obama says to the assembled Congress uh, that they should be happy about having the, quote, job-creating projects in your district, end quote. The job-creating projects in your district. And then it says he got laughter because of that. They all laughed. But again, what does this do? This proves my point. They all know that their whole purpose, there is, and you know, not all of them, again, there are exceptions, but so many of these politicians, they just want to get reelected. They want to get the financial rewards that come with becoming a congressman or a senator. Uh, you know, the, Hannity has been doing this series, or he did this series, about how uh, wealthy everybody in Washington is, that it used to be a very middle-class place, and then now it's like the most expensive bottles of champagne. And this is, It's because all these people are very wealthy. Why? Because they have all these little pet projects in their district earmarked in all these bills, and then they laugh about it. I mean, that is truly disgusting. He talks about a, quote, partnership to rebuild America again, Partnership. That means a partnership, government working together with private industry. In other words, more fascism, more incentive to displace resources from their highest productive use and basically dump them down a big black hole. A refinance bill. He talks about a bill that would allow all of us to refinance our mortgages at a lot cheaper rate. And he says, quote, why would we be against that? End quote. Well, you know, why would we be against that? Why would anybody here be against that? What is he doing there when he's using that argument? He's committing what Ayn Rand called argument from intimidation. You can go ahead and Google that argument from intimidation. What it means in essence is that he means to say that if you don't agree with him about this new refinance bill, which of course is just another redistribution of wealth, right? If you don't agree with him, you're bad in some way. I mean, you know, why would we be against that? I mean, you're just helping out the poor homeowner who's struggling to make his mortgage payments. You know, how could you be against that? So if you, you know, if you're against it, you're bad. And then, you know, what that does is it, it, it impugns the character of the person who disagrees and it leaves the actual measure itself, the refinance bill and the merits of it completely unexamined. That's the kind of stuff that Obama does in these speeches. Ominously enough, he talks about giving access to preschool for all children in America. Translation, he wants to start the indoctrination of our children much sooner than already happens. Then he talks about training in college and blah, blah, blah. And I ask him again, training for what jobs? You're killing jobs and everything else that you're doing, and yet you think you're going to train them? I mean, is the idea that if you train them, then they don't necessarily show up as unemployed figures while you're in office? So if I can just keep them in school, they're not on the unemployment rolls, and so I'll look better? I mean, maybe that's his idea. I don't know. Uh, he talks about immigration reform. Doesn't say what he has in mind, of course. Paying lip service to it. You're not going to see proper immigration reform from Obama or anybody else. And what's worse, in today's context, if he really talks about bringing more people to compete on our job market, because he's doing everything he can to kill jobs, he is creating more competition for the scarce jobs that do exist. Uh, you know, why do people sometimes resent immigrants? It's because we are in a scarce economy. We got a silly nod to Joe Biden for helping to write the Violence Against Women Act, which was recently passed. Um, I think there's already criminal law at the state level to address violence against women. And I guess he's trying to set up Biden for 2016. Ha, it should only be that Biden is the one to run. Although, I mean, I might eat my words, but I would think that it would be ridiculous if we elected Biden. But then again, we elected Obama for a second term. So I don't know what to think anymore. The Paycheck Fairness Act for women, the Paycheck Fairness Act, because women aren't treated fairly. Now, listen, if you have a truly free market, 
women aren't being paid what they're worth, they will go work someplace else. They will be bid away from their jobs. But no, it, obviously it's got to be inherently unfair if a particular woman is not making as much as a man in that. Uh, he wants to hike the minimum wage to $9. I refer you to Jonathan Honig, who tweeted about that this week. Countries that have minimum wage always have higher unemployment. Obama says, yeah, you know, we'll raise incomes. Yeah, of course you'll raise incomes. And you'll make everything else uh, more expensive, all the stuff, you know, that you want them to be able to afford, their food and clothing and shelter. And plus, you'll destroy jobs because if I have to pay people more per hour, I'm going to hire fewer people. Duh. Um, But, yeah, do follow Jonathan Honig because he's got a lot of good... Uh, you know, pieces of economic information, a lot of concretes that I don't know about personally. He says, uh, Obama says that his administration will partner, again, partnership, partner with hard-hit towns and that he has basically uh, used executive action in order to partner with hard-hit towns and help them in some way. So he's using executive action now to redistribute wealth in the minor ways that he's able to without the help of Congress. But, of course, he wants Congress to help him, too, with it. Of course, you know, they should feel guilty. Um, And then he goes into the phase of the speech where he stirs you into a patriotic feeling about our military so he can introduce his foreign policy agenda out there. And he talks about our, quote, commitment to a unified and sovereign Afghanistan, end quote. Now, first of all, I'm not committed to a unified and sovereign Afghanistan. What I'm committed to, I'm committed to an Afghanistan that leaves us alone and that doesn't harbor or buddy up with our enemies. I don't care if they're unified whether they're sovereign with respect to other people. Honestly, I really don't care as long as they don't attack us or help our enemies. Of course, there's plenty of in Afghanistan who have shown their willingness to attack us, uh, and they have attacked our soldiers on the ground there as well. Uh, he does admit that al-Qaeda is still around, although, what, they're a shadow of their former self. He doesn't use the word decimated anymore. Decimated has an exact meaning, which means it's like one-tenth of its former size or whatever. So he's kind of saying, oh, they're just a shadow. Um, But he says, look, we don't need thousands of troops to deal with al-Qaeda. All we have to do is use, quote-unquote, direct action through a, quote-unquote, range of capabilities. What does he mean by range of capabilities? I guess he means drones. And Obama has engaged in some questionable use of drones. But the funny thing is, is that the left doesn't ever question his use of drones. I mean, if a Republican was in office, imagine. But the other thing that he may be doing through this range of capabilities is something that I saw in a New York Post article this week and something that may have led to the attack on our consulate in Benghazi. It's He uses these special ops missions to go after al-Qaeda in secret, and we don't know about it. This is all unsubstantiated. Go read the New York Post article for yourself. I didn't want to make a big thing about it. But um, they say, they allege that Obama is doing these missions and that the reason that our uh, ambassador got killed and the consulate was attacked was because, uh, as a retaliation from al-Qaeda to these special ops. So Obama should know more than anybody why we got attacked if this is true and shouldn't be putting stuff out there about some video, which is why we need to call him Barack Benghazi Obama and just make it stick, as Bosch says. Uh, he says that he uh, that there's a whole bunch of people, there's a coalition or whatever, willing to, quote, do what is necessary, end quote, to prevent Iran from having a nuclear weapon. He doesn't say specifically that he's willing to use force or that anybody in this so-called coalition is. Uh, but what then he does mention is that with Russia, we are going to negotiate reductions in nuclear arsenals, end quote. You remember the off-mic quote when he talked to the Russian representative and said that he's going to have more flexibility? This is when the flexibility comes in. He wants to reduce our nuclear arsenal. Note then when he talked about our, uh, you know, stand with respect to North Korea, who's been doing the testing and stuff. He says that we are going to enhance our missile defense, our missile defense, uh, as as if, you know, not having nukes is going to help us. He, he wants to destroy our nuclear arsenal. Uh, he says that he has, through executive order, improved our cyber defenses, 
you know, because Congress, they, they don't act. And so he just has to issue executive order after executive order to try to do what he wants. Uh, through executive order, he says he has been able to increase information sharing. How's that for something vague and ominous sounding? Uh, but he thinks that this increased information sharing is going to improve our privacy. Now, what he means is the government agencies will continue to share information with each other and that somehow government agencies sharing information with each other is going to improve our privacy. I mean, just to give you an example, the Federal Trade Commission has backdoors, and I've talked about this in the past. Federal Trade Commission has backdoors into both Facebook and Google. If they share their backdoor information, which includes all kinds of information about us because we share all this information through Google and Facebook, if they share it to other government agencies, whew, how much privacy do you have? But see, it's not privacy against the government that you should be concerned with. It's only privacy as against those big, evil, horrible corporations, right? Of course, he says Congress should also pass something about cyber defenses. But, you know, if they don't act, I mean, he's more than willing to do it. Uh, he wants us also to eradicate poverty in third world countries. I mean, it's the right thing to do, he says. In other words, watch your pocketbooks because that's more taxes. Uh, America should be a beacon, he says. And then listen to this one. He says, quote, we cannot presume to dictate the course of change in countries like Egypt, end quote. Translation. Don't blame us for arming the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt like we just did with our F-16s. Doesn't want to be bothered, you know. That was then. We can't be bothered with the, you know, trying to dictate the course of change in, in Egypt as long as it's democracy, you know. As long as they they're voting democratically, it doesn't matter if it's a Muslim Brotherhood. Come on. He is traveling to the Middle East. He tells us next month. Of course, after his big golf vacation, right? But I say watch out. There's going to be all kinds of speeches that compromise the moral stature of the United States in those speeches. And, of course, we'll talk about them here. He wants to have a nonpartisan commission to, quote, improve the voting experience in America, end quote. And he says that this commission is going to include his and Romney's attorneys. I say watch out. Um, I mean, that's just terrible. Uh, he, he, I, I don't even know what he's going to do to try to be able to f- have ways to rig the vote in the future, you know, by improving our voting experience. He wants to be able to all vote online, which, of course, could then be hacked. Gun control. He talks about gun control, of course, in a way that's tugging on everybody's heartstrings. He brings up a woman, uh, actually a very young woman, 15 years old, Hadia Pendleton, who was shot in Chicago at age 15. Um, So he talks about her and all these other victims of of shooting violence recently. They deserve a vote. You know, never mind the idea that politicians, if they are opposed to a particular piece of legislation, that one of the ways that they can ensure that that piece of legislation is not passed is by doing everything they can to prevent an up-and-down vote. Oh, no, no, no. All these victims, they deserve an up-and-down vote. You know, and, and what is he doing? He's appealing to your emotion. This is an example, again, another fallacy. It's called argumentum ad populum. Argumentum ad populum. It's appeal to the emotions of the crowd. You know, populum, the populace. But what about the crowd? It's the, it's the emotions. It's their emotions. Um, he talks about concrete, heroic acts of individuals you know, operating in Hurricane Sandy and other disasters. And he finishes up by saying, quote, this country only works when we accept certain obligations to one another and to future generations, end quote. So the only way this country will work, if he has anything to say about it, is that we must accept certain obligations to one another. You have obligations to one another, but not only to one another, but to future generations, because that's where the climate change stuff comes in, right? Um it's collectivist, it's egalitarian, it's it's the same garbage that contradicts the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that he has talked about in the past. In terms of any discussion about rights, how about this for a phrase? He says, our rights are wrapped up in the rights of others. Again, he says, our rights are wrapped up in the rights of others, end quote. And by that, he does not mean, oh, we have to treat rights as a principle, 
such that you can't say, and this is uh, Don Watkins gave a, a nice little uh, discussion of this in the Q&A that they had, uh, you know, he, he, rights uh, apply only to Don Watkins or apply only to Amy Peacock. They don't apply to anybody else. Uh, what Obama likes to say is not that rights are freedoms to act, as I think a proper understanding is. I think a proper understanding of rights is our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness mean that we have the right to take all the actions in support of our lives. We have the liberty to act so long as we don't infringe on other people's liberty to act according to their own judgment. We are allowed to take all of the actions that we deem appropriate in pursuit of our own happiness. Rights are rights to action. If rights are rights to action, they are not wrapped up in the rights of others. All others have to do is leave you alone. But what he means is that our rights include rights to stuff rights to an education, rights to a so-called basic bargain. If you work hard, you should be rewarded regardless of whether other people voluntarily choose to reward you for your hard work because your hard work has provided a value to them. Um, so that's basically what I have here on the State of the Union. Another uh, thing that I want to refer you to in the discussion in the Q&A by Don Watkins and your own Brooke is the issue of the middle class. He talks about the, the, you know, the middle class being the thing that he always wants to gear his efforts towards, and they have a very good answer to that as well. Let me go ahead and pick up the call here from Debbie. Hi, Debbie. Sorry to keep you holding for so long. I just wanted to get through my insane eight-page-long analysis of, the, of this man's speech. Did you actually watch it? No, I uh, I wanted to listen to it on my way home from work, but I was at work uh, too late, <laughs> so I didn't get to hear any of it, and uh, and I read a good amount of it later. It's kind of better that way in a lot of ways. I just I don't think that I need to hear him actually say it. It's just it's just you know to hear yeah. him speak. <laughs> so no, so, no, uh, and. and- and, and like I said, I mean, it would it would disgust you even more to actually see Tim Cook there, uh, you know, oh, yeah. accepting the praise for having Apple. I mean, what what do you think as somebody who's in the the tech industry of Tim Cook bringing these Mac manufacturing jobs back to the United States? Um, it's just uh, kind of hard for me to imagine how they could really do that and not take a hit at their bottom line. I mean, I'm actually a little surprised that they're able to do it at all because, for instance, my company, which is a totally different kind of company, um, I can't talk in too specific terms about this because um, of confidentiality and and stuff, but uh, my company wants to get uh, a certain manufacturing capability in-house so that we can make... um, something. <laughs> I have to be vague here. But um and I was in a meeting the other day and someone was talking about that and and with the CEO and, and it came up that well we can't just get that capability because the EPA has banned it. But then it turns out that there are some companies that got grandfathered in that do this process. So if we want to get this capability we have to buy a company that has been grandfathered in by the EPA and take over their permission to do it. And that's just one example of just trying to, all the hoops that one has to go through in order to get the appropriate permissions to make something. Right. So, uh, you know, they're all, go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say that, that just sounds horrible and it sounds like exactly the sort of thing that Obama and our government, not just Obama, you know, his predecessor Bush, the same thing. Things that the government has been doing to destroy jobs, you know, and this idea that, oh, we'll we'll just train people and therefore they'll be able to get jobs. No, they're not going to be able to so long as government is destroying it. So I want to I want to give you the uh, the last word on the State of the Union before I go into some good news stuff. Uh, What what else did did you have on it? Well, I do have some good stats, I think, that you might be interested to hear about the, the whole gun control issue. You know, he was trying to make that. Uh, odd populum type of argument and say that, that guns are such a menace. But somebody had posted on Facebook uh, a week or two ago some stats on all the good that's done as a result of people owning guns. And um, it's from the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, National Crime Victim Survey. And what it says is that 550 rapes 
and 1,100 murders are prevented every day just by showing a gun. Uh, I don't know exactly how one would track a prevented murder, for instance, because it's, you know, it's kind of hard to say what the outcome would be. But I think the general idea there is that um, that because someone has a gun, they're preventing a really heinous, a violent crime from happening. Um, and and that's the kind of thing that, that you don't ever hear these politicians talking about is is whether there would actually be a net decrease in violent crime at all, even if you were just making a purely utilitarian argument uh, about it. Right. And, 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 of course, you know, it's not that we want to make a purely utilitarian argument, but that's the type of thing that Obama appeals to. And he's, he's completely wrong if he thinks that the number of deaths and victims in this country is going to be reduced by restrictions on gun ownerships, not to mention, again, you know, the destroying of jobs and the economy and all, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, again, I just want to remind listeners who haven't heard this before, if you wanted to look at a really good argument about gun control, of course, I, I talk about some gun control issues on, a, on an earlier show, but uh, Harry Binswanger wrote the i think probably one of one of the definitive essays on looking at gun control from an individualist perspective it's not the statistics that we should be looking at we should be looking at what is government justified in doing with respect to an individual and whether the individual can own guns or not so i think that's the good thing uh, any anything else Deborah? that was a piece of good news i like that yeah, yeah, exactly. But but also, I heard Leonard Peikoff's podcast, I think, from this Monday, and he dedicated it to gun gun control-related uh, issues, and I thought that was really great, too. He had a lot of good things to say there. Always does. Always does, definitely. Okay. So, uh, speaking of gun control, I'm, I'm going to go into the actually first good news story here that I got this week. Thanks, uh, thanks Deborah, for calling. Hang on and, and go ahead and put the little question mark on if you wanted to say anything else on a different topic. But I got this story thanks to Eileen Skeen, who shared it with me at the Don't Let It Go on Her page on Facebook. This is from Breitbart.com, and it was published on the 15th of February. The headline is, Gun Companies Refuse Sales to State Governments that have strict gun laws. They say with strict gun laws, but uh, just just to be clear, the gun companies are saying that they will not sell to governments who enact strict gun laws. Uh, The article says that six gun companies have announced plans to stop selling any of their products to any government agency in states that severely limit the rights of private gun ownership. So there's New York state lawmakers, they talk about other jurisdictions, they have passed strict gun control legislation, and that these companies have gotten together and said that they are not going to sell their law enforcement, the firearms. So uh, LaRue Tactical says, effective today in an effort to see that no legal mistakes are made by LaRue Tactical or its employees, we will apply all current state and local laws as applied to civilians to state and local law enforcement slash government agencies. In other words, LaRue Tactical will limit all sales to what law-abiding citizens residing in their districts can purchase or possess, end quote. And then there's other examples, so I refer you to the article. I think this is a wonderful piece of good news. I think this is an example of companies actually shrugging, uh, something that is very rare, as Jerome Brooke said in his uh, Q&A response to the State of the Union. I think that is wonderful, wonderful news. So thanks, Eileen, for passing that on to me at the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook. One minute. Yeah, one minute. Oh uh, yeah, this, Bosch is here. By the I, way, he just dropped in. I, I just popped in. Uh, I just want to say, I have an idea for a cartoon of having like a, a wagon full of parasites and Atlas <laughs> pulling it. What do you think? Where did you get that? From you. By the way, you, you did a hell of a job breaking down that rat speech. Excellent, excellent. I was listening to it. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you. I think that was the nicest interruption that Bosch ever gave me on yeah. the entire history of this show. I, I thank you, Bosch. Um, another piece of good news here. A Newsmax article, Thursday, February 14th. Now, this one I don't think is quite as unequivocal as the prior one. I really love the idea of the gun companies saying, we won't sell to the governments who restrict gun ownership. We will sell to government agencies only those arms that they say that they would allow citizens to to purchase. This 
headline from Newsmax February 14th says, more than 30 states rebuke Obamacare exchanges. For those of you who follow the Obamacare implementation fiasco, there's these exchanges for purchasing so-called insurance on a semi-free market. Um, and the states are given the option of whether they want to actually partner, right, again, partner, uh, partner with the federal government in creating these exchanges, or rather they would like to have no hand in it at all. Now, mind you, some states are going to decide not to participate in these exchanges or not to themselves take on the responsibility of creating these exchanges just because it's practical, right? It's just a practical matter. But some of them might be doing it in a principled way. They might be saying, I don't want myself as a governor of a state to have any hand at all in implementing the next step to socialized medicine, and so therefore we won't create an exchange. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen at the hands of the federal government. Uh, I think it's good news that 30 states are not going to be involved because I think it's going to make the burden on the federal government that much more, and then it gives the opportunity if the Republicans choose to accept and embrace the opportunity, it gives the opportunity for the Republicans to withhold funding for the implementation of Obamacare and to make it an utter and absolute failure, which is what it's going to eventually do anyway. But I would like it to fail before it's ever implemented. That would be my preference. Of course, now, as I said, I, I just don't believe that enough politicians in Washington have it in them to take a principled stand to fully repeal Obamacare. Ted Cruz, who I'll talk about in a second in our third good news story, he is uh, an anomaly right now in, in the Senate where he has actually tried to introduce legislation to completely repeal, completely repeal uh, Obamacare. And, and, you know, this idea that they want a complete repeal, most Republicans do not want a complete repeal. They would love to get their hands on the power that is embodied in the 2,000-some-odd pages of that Affordable Care Act. It's, uh, it's disgusting. Third story, third good news story. I am keeping my promise, Michael, there in the chat room. Texas senator goes on attack and raises bipartisan hackles. This is a New York Times story of February 15th, and it is about Senator Ted Cruz. And I refer you to go and read this article at some length because it talks about the fact that not only is Cruz raising the hackles of the Democrats, but he is also raising the hackles of people in his own party. Uh, Cruz says, and I, you know what I think it, it shows a really good, smart approach uh, by Cruz. Cruz apparently... Um, answered the interview of the New York Times by email. The New, the New York Times made a point of saying that he, you know, said these things in the article in emailed answers to questions in lieu of speaking. And I think that is super, super good because what will the New York Times do? If Cruz says the something that is the slightest bit ambiguous, equivocates even the tiniest bit the New York Times will seize on it, will misinterpret him, and try to make him look bad. So I think the idea of a politician who really wants to protect himself from this media answering those questions by email is very good. So here's what Cruz said. He said, I made promises to the people of Texas that I would come to Washington to shake up the status quo. And he says, that is what I intend to do. It is what I have done in every way possible in the responsibilities that have been granted to me, end quote. Good for you, Ted Cruz. Please keep up the good work. I know that he's going to do some things that disappoint me. He's probably religious or who knows what. I don't know. But he seems to be somebody who is shaking up the establishment, both obviously Democrats, but also in the Republican Party. Uh, there was one of the leaders, I can't remember which, I think McConnell or somebody said, needs to come around and compromise. Uh, he needs to learn to do that. You know, once he does that, then he's a real politician. Disgusting. No, don't do it. Don't listen. Everybody, we are at the end of our hour. I cannot believe it. Thank you, everybody, for listening today, for participating in the chat room. If you have enjoyed the show or if you wanted to just leave any kind of comment, pro or con, go to don'tletitgo.com. 
There is a post at don'tletitgo.com where you can leave your reaction, your comment to this particular show. There's also a link there where if you choose and you think I'm providing you guys a value, you can choose to donate to this show. There are several people who have already donated, some of them very generously. Thank you very, very much for doing that. Um, But there's other ways that you can contribute. You can join the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook, follow at Blog Talk Radio, or you can spread the word to your friends. Why? This is a word-of-mouth operation, and my mouth is only so big. Thanks, everybody. Have a good evening, and we'll talk next week.